Hi everyone, this is Edwin Crozier with another lesson presented for the Franklin Church of Christ. On every second Sunday night of the month, we look for Bible answers to questions submitted by members of the Franklin Church of Christ. In this lesson, we'll examine the Bible to answer four questions on temptation, sin, and repentance. May God richly bless us as we learn what His Word says about these issues. As Ron pointed out just moments ago, this is the second Sunday night of the month, which means we are going to be dealing with some questions that have been submitted by you, and I hope that what we study will be helpful to us in answering the questions. I do not have all the answers, and we're not doing this on second Sunday night, because I think somehow that everybody else doesn't know as much as I do, and so you ask me all your questions, that's not what it's about at all. It's just about the fact that I know we have questions, I have questions, you have questions, and we believe that the Bible has the answers. And so we ask questions and we study the Bible to help us find the answers to those questions. That being the case, I recognize that everything we do on the second Sunday night of the month is based on my study and what I've looked up regarding the answers, and I may be wrong. Therefore, as really with any lesson, if there's anything that you think that I am misrepresenting regarding the Word of God, please feel free to talk to me about that. I love to study the Word of God with you so we can help one another go to heaven, learning His Word, being His children, so that we can glorify and honor Him. Before we deal with the first question, would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, I pray that you would be with us tonight. Help us to have our hearts open to your Word, because indeed, Father, you are worthy of honor and praise and glory, and your Word is a light to our lives and a lamp to our path, and we pray that we will have understanding that we might serve you, that we might know how we can glorify you. And Father, we pray that you be with us tonight as we look at these questions about sin and temptation and repentance that we will have understanding, that we can have comfort in your Son and in His grace, and that we can turn to you and submit to your will, that we might have the forgiveness of our sins that we so desperately desire. Father, we pray that you would be merciful to us because we are sinners. Father, I pray that you help us all to have the proper attitude, that we'll submit to your Word, that we will be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath, and that we will follow your Word, that it may save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The very first question that we're going to be dealing with tonight, and we do have essentially kind of a theme. These questions were not all submitted by one person, but they all, uh, I I thought, fit into a theme. And we've had a couple of second Sunday nights where we dealt with just one issue, so I thought it would be good to go ahead and and take one where we dealt with several. But there is kind of a theme in all these questions. The very first one is, does each and every person sin daily? This is not an easy question to answer. Because the fact is, I don't know. God has never in His Scripture told us how often the average person sins, and He has never in His Scripture told us how often each and every person sins. I would like to share with you, though, what God has told us. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't know how often each and every person sins, but I do know that each and every person who reaches the age of accountability does sin. And of course, that's why we need a Savior. But as we take a look at Christians, I think we need to remember that Christianity is about growth. When we become a Christian, we're making a commitment to grow and to submit ourselves to the righteousness of God. Flip over a chapter 2 to Romans chapter 6. 
And notice, we can begin at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. When we become Christians, we're not supposed to be continuing in sin. We're supposed to be getting a handle on that. Notice verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And it continues on. But you see the idea? We're supposed to be growing as Christians, submitting ourselves as slaves to righteousness, no longer as slaves to sin. I recognize, of course, that this is a growth process. We can look in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. You flip all the way over to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. The text in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence or virtue, in your moral excellence knowledge, in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, in your perseverance godliness, in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I recognize from that text is is that even though we're Christians, we've still got to increase our faith. We've still got to increase our moral excellence, our virtue. We're still going to increase our knowledge, still increase our self-control. But it is supposed to be increasing. I'll tell you what that means. That means today I shouldn't be sinning as much as I was sinning last year. And I certainly should not be sinning as much today as I was sinning before I became a Christian. Right? We became Christians, yes, because of God's grace to wash our sins away, but not so we could sit back and say, oh, well, we all sin. I guess it's no big deal. We became Christians to receive God's grace, but when we did that, we were committing ourselves to getting a handle on these issues, to growing and overcoming sin. And considering the fact that we are growing, I also remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. 
What this says is that with every temptation we have, every day of our lives, God has provided a way for us to overcome it. Now, if I'm growing as a Christian, if I am submitting myself as a slave to righteousness, I am adding faith, I'm adding virtue, I'm adding knowledge, I'm adding self-control, it stands to reason that at some point in my life, I ought to be able to get to a point where I can go at least one whole day taking God's ways of escape. Now, of course, I recognize that some are going to fall back on the fact that, well, yes, but can't we always do better? Is there any day when we did everything to the greatest extent we possibly could? I'm not convinced that just because we didn't go just as absolute far as we possibly could every day, just because we didn't read our Bible for the six hours that we probably could have that day that we've sinned, I'm not convinced of that. What I'm convinced of is that every time we're tempted, God provides a way of escape, and if we're growing... We should be getting to a point where we're taking that way of escape more than we're not taking it, don't you think? I, I think we should be. But now having said all that, I also remember 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, where John says, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Now, I believe this is John speaking here. And he's talking about himself as an apostle and the apostles. And he's not talking about what happened before they became Christians, but he's just talking about their life as they continued as Christians. And he's saying, if we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth isn't in us. And so I learned from that that, well... We're, we're working on it. We're growing. We ought to be taking the way of escape more than we're not taking the way of escape, and yet we're failing at times. However, please note when you look at this passage that it doesn't put any time constraint on it. It doesn't say that if we say we haven't sinned within the last minute. It doesn't say that if we say we have not sinned within the last hour or within the last day or within the last week. It just says if we're trying to say that we don't sin, then we're lying because we all still have room to grow. And so here's what I know. Does each and every person sin daily? I certainly hope not. But I really don't know what you're doing every day. I certainly hope that we're all growing. But here's what I know. We have all sinned. And even though we're Christians and we're growing, we probably will all sin. And that's why Jesus died. However, having said that, I recognize that we are supposed to be growing to overcome sin, so I am not allowed to say, oh, well, every Christian sins every day. We're all just only human. No big deal. The sins that I know I committed today do not matter. Remember Romans 6.23? Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And he's saying that to Christians. If I ever get to the mindset where I think to myself, well, it's okay. I mean, you know, that's why Jesus died. My sins today don't matter. Because every Christian sins every day, then Romans 6.23 is going to apply to me. But on the other hand, if I can look at any period of time, whether it's a minute, an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, ten years, I don't care how long you look at it. If you can honestly and truthfully say, I haven't sinned in that period of time, I want you to remember Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 and verse 10. So you too... When you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. We're growing to overcome sin. 
When we do overcome sin, if we do it for a period of time, an hour, a day, however long, that we're winning. We need to remember, I'm not really doing anything special. I'm just doing what I should have been doing all the way along anyway. So keep that in mind. Question number two. What is the limit of Satan's ability to know and tempt us? Does he know what is in our minds? Well, this is also another difficult question because the reality is, as I search the Scripture, I don't believe God tells us exactly what limitations there are on Satan's abilities and what he knows about us. Here are the things that I've been able to discover that I do know about Satan. I know that Satan is not one of us. Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're working against the schemes of the devil. And he goes on, because you've got to learn how to withstand the schemes of the devil because we're not fighting against flesh and blood. What's that mean about the devil? The devil is not flesh and blood. He's not a man like us. So he doesn't necessarily have the limits we have. He said our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of its darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan is different from us. He's got power that we don't have. He's got ability that this spiritual being that he is, he's something that we are not and can do things that, that we can't do. But I, I'm certainly glad to know Second, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, as Paul was listing the qualifications for those who would be elders, he said that they shouldn't be a new convert. 1 Timothy 3, 6. Why? So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Implicit in this statement is the fact that the devil is not unlimited. God is unlimited, right? God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. But that's not Satan. Just because Satan is a spiritual being does not mean he is unlimited like God. And the reason why I know he is limited is because if you're unlimited, can you think too much of yourself? If I can do everything and know all things, how can I possibly think too much of myself? But you see, Satan incurred this punishment, this condemnation, because of conceit. He thought too much of himself. He thought more of himself than he really was, which means he was limited. He's not God. So while we look at Satan, we must not give him some type of divine qualities. He is a created being. And he has the limitations that created beings have. If we want to attribute to him omnipresence, we need to go to the Scripture and find that. I don't think we can. If we want to attribute to him omniscience, we need to go to the Scripture and find that. I don't think we can. If we want to attribute to him omnipotence, we need to go to the Scripture and find that. And I don't think we can. I can't find that in the Scripture. If that's our view of Satan, then it's not based on God's Word. He is a spiritual being, yes, but he is not divine. However, then I come back to the other side, but I'm reminded, but he's not one of us. And so I can't take passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, and necessarily apply it to Satan. Where it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Because he says, who among men knows the thoughts of a man? It doesn't say anything about Satan. 
talks about us. I can't know what's on your mind, but it doesn't say anything about the angels. It doesn't say anything about Satan. It doesn't say anything about any of them. So I don't know. And if there were any passage, unless I'm missing it, that would be able to help us, this would probably be it. And it doesn't say anything about Satan. It just talks about what we can know. And so I don't know the limits of Satan's knowledge of us. I'll tell you what I do know. I do know that Satan knows how to tempt us. And I do know that Satan is very effective at tempting us, each of us, because Romans 3 and verse 23 points out that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether he knew what was in our minds or whether he just watched what we've done, I don't know. But I know this, he figured out somehow to tempt us and make us, and not make us, but trip us up because we chose to follow him. I know that. I also know that he's very aggressive at it. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us, warns us, says, Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's very aggressive. This is not just a game for him. This is lunch. This is his food. This is how he sustains himself, is getting us to fall. He's aggressive. Of course, I'm reminded that verse 9 says, but resist him, firm in your faith. We can resist him. We can overcome. Satan is a tempter, and he's very effective at it, but we can overcome him. There is one thing that I do know about the limits. I do know from the book of Job that Satan is limited by God. God doesn't allow, allow Satan to do everything even that he can possibly do. In Job chapter 1, in verse 12, Job chapter 1 and verse 12, as Satan and the Lord are discussing Job, the Lord says to Satan in Job chapter 1 and verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And Satan was allowed to do awful and tragic things to get Job to fall. But at that point, he was not allowed to touch Job. He comes back, chapter 2, verse 6. Satan whines a little bit to the Lord, saying, this is not fair. You won't let me do anything to Job himself. If you let me do something to him, then he'll fall. I, I'm sure that he will. I tell, by the way, I tell you what that does show about his limitations, is that he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. Because Job didn't. But Job chapter 2 and verse 6, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. And so after that, he gave him boils and gave him problems, but he couldn't kill him. So he was limited. He could not do beyond what God would allow him to do. Even if it was something that he was physically capable of doing, because I'm certain that, I mean, Satan killed all those other people. I think Satan had the power to kill Job, but God wouldn't let him. And then I'm reminded of the passage we read just moments ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, which provides me a great deal of comfort. I may not know the absolute physical limitations that Satan has because of his character and nature, but I do know that God limits him, and I know that the greatest limitation that God presents on him, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. That's phenomenal. Satan, with whatever he has at his disposal, is not allowed by God to tempt us beyond what we're able to overcome. 
Isn't that great? There's never a single time in my life that I can say the devil made me do it. Because he didn't. God doesn't let him do that. I'm tempted when I draw, I'm drawn away by my own desires and I choose to fall. Satan can't make me. And that's what I know about the limitations of Satan and his ability to tempt us. Question number three. How do we get forgiveness for the sins of which we are unaware or sins we have forgotten? Before we actually answer this question, I do want us to understand one concept. We need to recognize that we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We are not saved by perfect confession. We do not earn salvation by perfectly confessing every single one of the sins that we have ever committed. If you look in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We are saved by the death of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Actually, verse 5. Ephesians 2, verse 5, "...even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved." Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." If I'm going to be saved, it's going to be by the grace of Jesus Christ. It is not going to be because I have somehow perfectly confessed all of the sins I have ever committed. That is not what God has ever mandated. Does God mandate confession? He certainly does. But there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that, whoops, if I forgot one, I'm going to hell. None of us are going to stand before God on Judgment Day, having grown and served Him and continued producing the fruit of the Spirit and stand before Him, and He's going to say, well, you know, you did pretty well, but... Back on June 10th, 1985, you may remember, or maybe you don't, but nevertheless it happened, you cussed and you forgot to confess that one. Off to hell you go. It's not going to work that way. That is not how God works. Keep in mind, God doesn't want us to go to hell. He wants us to go to heaven. With that in mind, we take a look. There's actually two different things here. How do we get forgiveness for sins of which we are unaware? How do we commit sins of which we are unaware? If we didn't know it was a sin, right? I can imagine that taking place. New Christian, doesn't know everything about the Word of God, doesn't understand that buying a lottery ticket is a sin. And so he goes and buys one. Unaware. How's he going to get forgiveness of that? Let's remember that Christianity is a growth process. Remember the passage we read just moments ago in Second Peter chapter one? Second Peter chapter one, beginning at verse five. Now for this very reason also applying all diligence. 
in your faith supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be growing. When we come out of the watery grave of baptism, we are not perfect. We're not mature. There's a lot of things we don't know. What does Peter tell us we're supposed to do? We're supposed to be adding knowledge. When we add knowledge, that we're going to add virtue. What does that mean? That means, hey, I'm learning things. I'm learning that this over here was a sin. I'm going to quit doing that. I'm learning that this is what God wants me to do. I'm going to start doing that. We grow. As we grow in our knowledge, we learn more about what is sin. Remember what the psalmist said? Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do I overcome these sins of which I'm unaware? I've got to become aware. I've got to apply all diligence and grow. Because as I grow, I can learn what is a sin and I can repent and I can turn away from it. That takes time though, doesn't it? And so I'm glad that not only do we have 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8 through 8 in our Bible, I'm also glad that we've got 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Remember what Peter tells us there? In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, "...the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." God is not sitting in heaven waiting for one of us, His children, for whom He sent His Son to die so we could go to heaven. He is not waiting up there for us to slip into some ignorant sin so that He can zap us and cast us into hell. He's patient with us. He wants us to learn. But I want you to notice, if we're going to receive forgiveness of these sins for which we're unaware, we've got to apply all diligence. We don't wait for the preacher to preach on it. We don't wait for the elders to talk about it. We don't wait for a Bible class. Our job is to apply all diligence. You have your own Bible. Does anybody here not own a Bible? Okay. Your job is to apply all diligence and study it and learn what God's will is, hiding it in your heart so that you won't sin, so that you can overcome these sins of which you are unaware. That's how we receive forgiveness for those sins. Well, what about these sins which we have forgotten? I think they're, when we understand this idea of, okay, here's a sin I've forgotten, what are we talking about? We're not talking about a habitual sin, something that I've been doing every day of my life, and, whoa, I just forgot that I've been cussing every day. Right? But, you know, we may have forgotten about that time when we were 16 after we were baptized and we were out with our friends, and, and who knows, you know, at, at that time we may have had a habit, and, and in fact, because it was a habit, we may not, it may not have even registered on our radar. And we didn't know, and we didn't mention that one specifically. However, when we're dealing with this issue of, hey, I've forgotten this one, we're not dealing with this continued habit that we're, we're saying. We're worried about some particular sin that we may have forgotten to actually address specifically in a prayer at some point. I want you to remember Luke chapter 17. 
excuse me, chapter 18. Verse 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And what did Jesus say? There in verse 14. I tell you, this man would have gone to his house justified if he had remembered all the specific sins and mentioned them specifically. That's not what he says. He said, this man went away justified. Why? Because he realized he was a sinner and he was changing. I believe we need to confess specifically. Don't, you know, I think we need to work on that. But again, it's not some issue of I'm going to be saved only when I confess every single sin I've ever committed in my life and have perfect confession. It's not the way it works. But you see, when we're dealing with this sin that I might have forgotten, we're dealing with the one particular sin. And if it's one sin that we've forgotten, that is implicit of the fact that I'm not still committing that sin, am I? Because again, if I was still committing it every day, I'm not forgetting that, am I? I mean, I may have forgotten some specifics, but if I'm using bad language every day, I know it, don't I? Of course. If this is something I've forgotten about way in my past, I don't have to worry about that because I've obviously turned away from that sin, haven't I? Isn't that what God's asked of me? Repentance. Turning away from it. I've changed. We've been using this example of foul language, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. I may not remember every single time I've ever said a bad word. And so I may not have specifically addressed every single instance. In fact, there's a whole bunch of them I've probably forgotten. A whole bunch of them that didn't even register. But in general, I've learned that I'm not supposed to talk like that, and so I've quit. I've confessed that I've used bad language. I've quit, and I've changed. I repented, and I turned away. Brethren, believe me that God is not up there saying, well, I sure am glad you quit using that language, but you forgot to mention that one back in 1974. Too bad for you. He's not doing that. He wants us to go to heaven. How do I receive forgiveness for sins I've forgotten? I think it's implicit. If I've forgotten them, it means I'm not committing them anymore. I've repented. I've changed. I've been forgiven. Does that make sense? But how do I receive forgiveness for sins that I'm unaware? I don't get to just continue being unaware and say, oh, God's going to wipe that away. I've got to apply all diligence, and I've got to grow. So that at some point in my life, I can sit back and wonder if I forgot one instance of ever doing that before. Okay? Final question. Question number four, I think, maybe. To what extent, if any, is restitution a part of Repentance. As we go through the Scripture, we find, a specific, especially into the old law, that restitution was considered a part of, if not repentance, at least punishment. At least setting things right. In Numbers chapter 5, we'll just look at a couple examples here. Numbers chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, 
In Numbers chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give, to, give it to him whom he has wronged. So when a person has found out that they sinned, if they were going to set it right, they did have to make restitution. I understand it's old law. What's amazing here, not only did they make restitution according to this law, but they had to add 20%. If they had caused some kind of damage to somebody's cattle, if they had stolen something, if they had harmed something, not only did they have to make full restitution, but they had to add one-fifth to it. Perhaps that was an issue of lost opportunity cost. I don't know, but God said they're going to add one-fifth to make restitution. I remember what David said in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when Nathan came to him of that story about that, that rich guy who had a friend come, and so he went next door and took that poor guy's one little lamb and killed it to have a feast. Do you remember what David said? David understood that the natural response is, that guy better give restitution. And not only restitution, David was hot. He said he better re- restore it fourfold. Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 6, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. In Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 30. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 30, the proverbialist says, Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he's found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. Now, they didn't say, well, he's just supposed to restore as long as he can. They said, Look, he restores even if it means he's given everything he's got. Sevenfold. Of course, interestingly, we keep reading in verse 32 and we find out that the proverbialists understood there were some sins for which it was impossible to make restitution, to set things right again. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. Basically, the proverbialist is saying, you know, if you stole from a man, when you paid him back seven times, he'd say it was, everything was good. But you commit adultery with his wife, and you can give gifts for the rest of your life, and it's not ever going to set things right again. You can't make restitution in that situation. I think that's very interesting. We flip over to the New Testament. Look in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus goes into the house of Zacchaeus. And in verse 8, I want you to notice Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus repents. And keep in mind one thing that's certainly different here from the Old Testament. This is not about punishment. Nobody's trying to punish Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has realized something on his own, and he's changing. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And I want you to notice what Jesus says. Today, salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was lost. But now he's saved. Why? Because he repented. And how did you see his repentance? Because he was willing to set things right. 
I'm going to tell you, Zacchaeus must have been a rich, rich man. And he must have been rich even from doing honest things because, he, first of all, he says, I'm going to give back half. Everything I've got, I'm going to give to the poor. And then when I've defrauded folks, I'm going to pay them back four times as much and he's still planning on having stuff. That's amazing. But part of his repentance, when he realized he was wrong, repentance naturally led him to say, I want to make things right. If I took from you, I'm going to give you back. And not only am I going to give it back to you, I'm going to give it back fourfold. There's restitution. But now have you noticed, in all of these cases of restitution, that they all had to do with the relationship of man to man? That if I sinned against you and caused some damage to you, that part of my repentance would naturally be to try to set that right and make restitution to you. And really, when you think about that, there's a certain amount of... just uh, If we think about some situation, we say, well, there's a certain amount of common sense to this, because if I stole Jimmy's car, and I repented, and I confessed, and you saw me next Sunday pull into the parking lot with Jimmy's car, what would you think about me? Did I repent, Jimmy? What would I do if I repented? I'd give you your car back, wouldn't I? Absolutely. Because if I realize that doing this is wrong, I am now going to make it right. However, what about my relationship with God? I can't make restitution. I can't make it right with God. Isaiah chapter 59 Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. And do you remember Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20? What's the punishment? What, what needs to happen to make it right? Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the person who sins will die. That's what it takes now to make it right. And he's not just talking about physical death and to go on into eternity, everything be good. He's talking about eternal death. I don't know about you. Well, no, I do know about you. We don't want that. But that's what we owe God to make it right. Is our eternal death. We can't make restitution to God. But that's why God made restitution for us. First John chapter two, verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He sent Jesus to die to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, that His death, His sacrifice, is what assuages the anger of God against us. It's what makes it right. It's what causes, allows us to be presented to God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God did what it would take to make restitution for us with our relationship with Him. And I think that's just absolutely phenomenal. Having said that, though, 
We don't need to sit back and say to ourselves, well, Jesus died. You know, all those sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter now because I remember that repentance, even in my relationship with God, while I can't pay Him back and there's no way for me to do enough stuff to earn it and make it right and make restitution to God, I do know this, that I'm supposed to change. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. You remember that one? Ephesians 4:28. He who steals must steal no longer. But do you remember that Paul didn't just stop there? He didn't just say, look, you've got to stop what you were doing. He says, you've got to change and you've got to go to the other side. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Not only must I stop stealing, but I've got to get to work. Why? So I can share with others who who are in need so that they don't steal. That's not going to make restitution to God. But I don't get to sit around lazily and say, oh, God's forgiven me for all my stealing. I'm supposed to change and be thankful that God's forgiven me and show my thanks by doing what He wants me to do. The Bible answers all of our important questions. I hope you have been spiritually benefited by the Bible answers to these Bible questions. Again, I want to thank you for joining us at the Franklin Church of Christ in this study. I invite you to study with us on any number of subjects. If you've been given this lesson on CD by a friend, feel free to get on our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com and download any of the lessons we have available in audio format or download the outlines to print out and study on your own. We have all the lessons that were presented in our question and answer sessions on our website. Just go to the sermon page and click on the heading labeled Questions and Answers. If you have any questions about temptation, about sin, about repentance, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please contact us by calling 615-794-2359 or contact us through our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you. And may you richly bless God.